We are in New York City where the great and the good of international diplomacy are gathered and where climate is taking a big focus this week. Let me explain. Let me explain with Sean Defoe, a News Talk original. Hello and welcome to the podcast and thank you for tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe wherever it is you're listening. We are coming to you from possibly the nicest place I've ever recorded this podcast, the Irish permanent mission in New York with a view over the New York skyline and the sun shining and the UN behind me. And I am joined by the Green Party leader, uh, the Minister for Energy and Climate, Eamon Ryan, who has a particularly big role this week. Uh, Minister, I want to talk about, there's lots to talk about, we may as well start with climate because tomorrow, uh, or maybe even today, depending on when people are listening to this, there is a climate summit. And a big focus this week already has been the sustainable development goals and targets that have been missed. And you may call me a cynic, but I think I have that fear that we might be here in a few years' time talking about the climate targets that have been missed. What sort of confidence could you give that actually we, we won't be in that place and the climate targets will be different to the SDG ones that were set back in 2015? Well, I think if I can just put it, it's interesting the way you, you introduced that because it does just put in context both the Sustainable Development Goals and the climate, Paris Climate Agreement came at the same time. It was in the autumn of 2015. The Sustainable Development Goals were negotiated in September in here in New York by an Irish civil servant, David Donoghue, and a Kenyan civil servant. But that was not a small thing for our diplomatic service. And then two or three months later in Paris, the climate agreement. And they were both, they were high watermarks of optimism in terms of we could both combat global poverty and also stop the climate change emissions. And you're right as well then that since then on both counts, we have not delivered. If anything, what did I hear Secretary General Guterres say today? That the hunger levels have got back back to the levels they're not seen since 2005. And you look even just in the last week with thousands, tens of thousands of people dying in Libya from a climate event. And just, I mean, this summer has, in my mind, changed the public perception because right across the world, um, there's dramatic evidence of climate change happening now, even at home. Like we didn't have a, well, I mean, it wasn't anywhere near as dramatic as elsewhere, but farmers couldn't bring in the hay because it was so wet in July. Um, it was weird because it was both wet and warm. Mm. It was fifth warmest summer ever in Ireland in a terrible summer. Like it's, it, people are increasingly aware, they can see it in their own lived experience that climate change is real. And we haven't made the scale of reductions that the climate crisis requires and that the Paris Climate Agreement um, set out. So that requires, makes it all the more important that we change and we do. And actually, I think putting it in that framework of both development and climate, in other words, protecting the poorest people in the world, a just transition and addressing climate at the same time is critical and you can't turn your back on it. What's the option? We just let it burn. We're not going to do that. So so that's why this week is important. And, and this week as a lead up to the climate negotiations in the end of November, December in Dubai, and indeed beyond that, because it, it is a process. It's not just like suddenly you click your fingers and it's all solved or, or that, you know, the world changes on an axle or, or you know, turns on a, on a hairpin. But, but, um, but we need to raise the game we we need to do a lot more when you're here at these kind of meetings bring us inside the room a little bit because not every government is sort of aligned with where you are or where europe is how much pushback is there from from other parts of the world to what you're trying to do not necessarily climate targets overall but the steps that need to be taken to get there well i would say this you'd be careful because 
it most countries can see it happening in a lot of countries it's actually happening a lot worse like if you're in in the horn of africa there's been droughts five years in a row and and my god you're you're attentive to climate change because of that or if you're in pakistan where fast swathes of the country were flooded last year like they won't forget that so they're very attentive now they don't have maybe as any as easy solutions because they don't have the finance and they don't have the large economies that that could help turn that around but pretty much everyone's interested um i mean maybe there are countries you know countries that would be making their money from fossil fuels and they have a particular challenge because they got to switch off that and we all have to switch off it but they they're losing their income as well as they're like you know when we switch away from fossil fuels we're losing a cost because we don't have you know we have carb gas fields small one but we're mainly importing it so for us it's a no-brainer like it makes economic sense it makes social it makes health sense it makes every sense if you're making raising i mean i was yesterday last night i was at an event which was the higher ambition coalition and it was really interesting i was talking to the colombian minister and she was saying that they're going to give up fossil fuels go up go beyond oil and gas and but that at the same time 40 percent, i think it was of their revenues as a state come from exporting coal i like, think you know, we buy a lot of colombian mm. coal or gas and so so for those countries it's going to be more of a challenge um but uh, i think the only way this will work is if every place matters and we don't you know we do do it as a climate justice transition i think particularly on the work i'm doing particularly at the moment uh, we have an event here on friday where we've been negotiating the loss and damage how we manage that that to explain to people is is how we would raise funds to pay for the likes of what happened in libya you mm. know to help people recover and we were involved in that in Sharm el-Sheikh last year. We represented the European Union in, in the negotiations. And I hope probably to go back to that this year and try and get that over the line. And, um, and it, But it won't be just loss and damage. It's also, in my mind, the more... Take, for example, Africa. The more Africa can develop renewable power, the better for us. Mm. Because, well, firstly, better for climate. But secondly, a lot of the migration issues we're facing in Europe is coming because of that instability on the climate and poverty and lack of energy access. If we could roll out solar power right across North Africa, Africa has 60% of the solar radiation landing on land. So it's an incredible resource, mm. but only 2% of the renewables investment. There are more solar panels in Holland than the entirety of Africa. Right. And we see Africa huge tensions, huge wars now in Sudan, coups in Niger and Gabon in, in all the West African countries not all but in a whole variety of countries and that's not good for Africa and it's not good for us because they're our neighbours and so part of my job is how do we develop obviously the clean transition in Ireland but how do we also work within the United Nations, within the European Union African Union to make sure that the renewables technology that's coming comes everywhere and, and Ireland has this tradition. We, we, we're like we're tiny, like we're so small. But our voice is listened to because, firstly, we were colonised, not mm. a coloniser. Secondly, we have a tradition like that old kind of that Irish missionary tradition where, you know, my uncle was a Dominican priest, went off to Tobago, Trinidad and Tobago, teaching uh, people. They did it in a way that wasn't, uh, that was kind of, 
um, that was respectful of local people, I think. And actually, that respect is now returning to us. I think, I sense when I meet people in the international arena, they get a sense that Ireland is just slightly different in a way. And we have, that's why in the likes of the United Nations, when we, why they picked, why did they pick an Irish civil servant to do the Sustainable Development Goals? Well, because they see us as coming from that tradition, a respectful tradition towards developing countries, small island states. And it's really in our interest to continue and to preserve and try and improve that because, because that's what the world needs. Like in a world that's falling apart with increased conflict, increased poverty and increased starvation uh, and wars around resources we have to we have to uh, uh, we have to stabilize it and stabilizing it it protects us yeah. it, it, it protects the whole world how do you go about doing that when there are so many hundreds of millions of Africans who don't even have electricity, let alone renewable electricity, don't have access to that and who are struggling through, you know, maybe a bit of development, then a conflict that sets everything back. You need money. <laughs> like, that's what the... Uh, I, I've, been, I've been involved now for the last few weeks in a series of events. I was at a climate um, uh, summit in Africa, in Nairobi, the week before last, and it was really interesting. The Kenyan government had turned around their position and they said it was they really were weren't looking to blame weren't looking who did what in the past they were really looking forward how could we develop this as a development opportunity in kenya and actually ireland has lessons that we've learned over the last if you look where we've gone you know this is very big and broad now but mm. it's true we were a poor agrarian undeveloped country back in the late 50s early 60s we opened up to the world and we brought in investment and we turned our country around in an incredible way, invested in education, joined the European Union and so on. So there is a model of how countries can do it. We're one of the examples. Um, so we do have to provide finance. Like the current system is not fair. The developing countries pay something like 15% interest rates. We pay four or five. Mm. Um, they have huge currency risk because they're often, the lending comes in dollars and you then how do you pay back in your local currency? Mm. It's really difficult. So a lot of what's happening and the global stage and what's been discussed here in New York this week is how do you change the International Monetary Fund? How do you change the World Bank? How do you take money from the fossil fuel industries, in my mind, or get them to invest in the clean energy alternative in ways that is is not exploitative, extractive, in ways that allows those countries in difficulty, this whole swathe of countries in difficulty because of the high inflation, high interest rate, high gas price world. Um, how do we do that? And, and I think that's what's been negotiated here this week. That's what, in the closed rooms, you were asking about what's... It's down to sort of technical issues around interest rates, currency risks, investments, and where you raise the money to to turn this round. Is there an element as well of trying to get away from maybe the, it being the European Union all the time giving money or, you know, the, the developed blocks? Yeah, well, I, I think it does have to because, like, you know, I mean, we're going up to our own budget. Now, we will increase our funding for climate finance. We will meet our commitments as part of, like, we can't be here talking all this and not delivering when it comes to our own budgets. But everyone knows 
than the end. You can't fund everything just through exchequer contributions from the developed world because, as we all know, we're going to have demands on education, health, housing, social welfare. So you've got to meet those demands locally. Their own transition in each country as well. Yeah, exactly. God, yeah. Um, So I think we're going to have to look at what they call other innovative forms of financing that including the likes of a charge on fossil fuel or making sure the fossil fuel companies who only are investing 1% of their surplus windfall profits from the energy price rise in clean energy technology to say, no, come on, mm. that's not good enough. You've got to wind down the fossil fuels, you've got to wind up the clean energy, and I think trying to get political commitment, and that is one of the things I'm working on. One of the big uh, talking points, I guess, of this UN summit is the people who aren't here, and you look at you know Emmanuel Macron, you look at Vladimir Putin or whoever, Rishi Sunak is another one, mm. uh, and reports out of the BBC today that part of the reason he's not here is he's preparing to basically walk back some of the UK's climate target. What's your reaction to that? I mean, I presume that's, that's pretty worrying for our nearest neighbour and a big partner to be going that route. Politically very risky too, because I think actually in the UK, same in Ireland, that beneath it, while people are concerned about those loads of issues and you know, making getting through to the end of the week and everything, uh, rather than the end of the planet being, but actually, I think the vast majority of Irish people and people in Britain understand the uh, risk and want to protect the future for their children. And I think if a government really turned against that green agenda, well, firstly, there's two or three risks in downside. Firstly, I think you'd lose the public because they rightly want to protect their children's future. But secondly. The world's going this way. I mean, every single speech here has been talking about climate. Every single speaker has recognised we're going to have to invest in the new, different alternative economy. Like, if the UK wasn't going to do that, so what are you going to do? You're going to be good at making Hillman Hunters from the 70s and burning coal and kind of, you know, where's that for, for an economic future? I think that you'd be dead in the water if you took that path. Mm. He obviously sees some advantage in it, though, and has been struggling politically. Do you think maybe there's a thought line that the hard decisions that need to be made are being sacrificed for politics? It would be interesting to test it. <laughs> it would be interesting to test and see. But I think any times recently when there has been that instinct, and take a look at home, like you, you don't have to go too far. Like we had early in the summer a situation where there were a lot of people from different parties, Sinn Féin, Fianna Gael, Fianna Fáil, you name it, we're kind of saying, oh, we're not. We're going to oppose the nature restoration law, until actually, with the prospect of that really happening, the silent majority who do want to see nature protected suddenly st- stood up and said, hold on a second here, I don't want nature destroyed. Why would I want to live in a world which is denuded of its all its wonder and beauty? And actually, we turned around at the last minute. We got a massive vote in the in the Dáil in favour of it. And our votes swung the European vote. It was actually, the Irish votes were the most telling votes in the European Parliament in that. And I think that was because, why was that? Because I think the vast majority of the Irish people were saying, no, you're not going to destroy nature in my name, thank you. Mm. So if we look at that, just to take your own party for a minute on a brief tangent, with that public support behind the climate agenda why why do you think the Greens are down to 2% in the latest poll I think, I think we're 6 in the latest poll or not oh is there another well, the, various, the one before that was down to 2 that's true um, listen um, I'd love to see it much higher I think it will be when it comes to election because I think we'll be able to put, show a record of delivery in local government in, in the Dáil and in the European Parliament that is very tangible and real and improves people's quality of life so and we have very good parties well placed at the moment we, we have great candidates coming forward who are we're internally cohesive and, and um, well organised. So I'm confident. Uh, where you are in the polls, uh, I actually detonished it to a certain extent over the last two or three years. I remember the kind of, you know, 
Fianna Fáil were down a bit in the polls, whatever, a couple of years ago, and he kind of, he, I remember just talking about it, and he was making the point, you could obsess about the poll, polls, you don't really, that doesn't really get you too far, and it doesn't necessarily reflect completely where you're at. I think your best, I mean, your job in government is to go out and deliver, work hard for the people and do your best and serve the people as best you can, and then you wait, the electoral fortunes will, will kind of come one way or the other. I think if you're, you're just chasing your tail if you're trying to obsess about getting it up in the me, in the in the immediate future. But I do think, like I look at countries similar to us, where the sort of green vote is about ten percent, and I do think in Ireland, you know, one in ten, currently it's probably about one in twenty, are kind of thinking voting green. I would, I think we need to get that up to one in ten to deliver the sort of speed and scale of change we need to make. So that's the argument I'll be making the next election and, and let the, let the people decide. Have you got a target in your mind, seats-wise, or where, where where would you be happy at? Well, starting first, I think the most important thing is local and European elections. I think if we can, I think we should run to March 25 in terms of general election because, well, firstly, November, in the autumn of 24, we'll have a lot. Of, we'll have a probably UK election. We'll have an American presidential election. Do we, do we want our election in the middle of that? And, and also in a world where there's very few stable governments, where actually that's a real benefit to the country. That's what it helps people invest in the country and and also you can get things done i'd prefer get things much things done in buildings many houses between now and march 25 delivering as much of the climate agenda between then and then go to the people and i think and in the interim there's actually a really important election and plus referendum or two but the local and european elections are important like local government is important we don't give it enough attention we don't give it enough respect uh, I've, as I said, we'd be we have about 50 candidates at the moment. If we're going to be ambitious in telling the rest of the country to make the change, with scale change we need to make, well, I think it'd be appropriate for us to ask ourselves to be ambitious and try and deliver a real change. So I'm I'm looking to try and get 100 seats in the local elections, try and get all three of the European seats. We've just launched our three candidates, Pauline Riley, in what's likely to be North and West, Grace O'Sullivan in the South and East, and Kieran Cuff in Dublin. And again, if we could, like the European Parliament is important. It has a huge impact on our lives. We don't really see it because it's in legislation. But um, if we were to add three European green seats to the green team there, that would have huge influence. We'd have huge impact. So you don't buy this idea that some of your Fine Gael and Fine Fáil government colleagues have been saying that November for a government is a better time to go. People aren't in as bad a mood as they can be in February after, you know, spending all the money at Christmas and they we're in the dark and doldrums of the winter. It'd be the Taoiseach's prerogative. But my advice, uh, which I give to him, uh, is I, I, I think why not go the full term? Why not? You know, that's, your, that's what your constitution allows. Um, it's, it's stable government isn't a bad thing. Yes, you want a government that delivers change, but you don't want it to be so chaotic or so stop-start or so short-term in its thinking that you'd miss out on the really big changes you can deliver. Mm. And by going full term, I think it's a signal of, but just about the country, that we're a stable constitutional democratic republic that can do politics in a way that isn't just some of the chaotic things we're seeing in other countries at the moment. Do you think there is, it would be any merit to the government campaigning re-election as a government rather than three distinct parties? Or is there something cathartic in you all hacking lumps off each other for a couple of weeks? The politics from my, where I come from of environmental, climate, ecology, is that we have such a change we need to make. Like the scale of change is beyond compare. And when the parties talk, talk change, I think they're talking about changing a badge, you know, a political badge, but not necessarily the sort of scale of change we're talking about. 
we are going to have to change everything to meet the climate targets we have to meet. For the better, I don't think it's a bad thing. If you're to make that scale of change, you need as big a consensus as possible. You need as many people to agree with what you're doing. If that's the case, and every place matters, every person matters, if you agree with that political point, then you come to a viewpoint, well, listen, we work with all parties. Mm. We've never go- had a pact with another party. We've never uh, looked at that idea of kind of, you know, going into a coalition agreement in effect in, in advance of an election. So, no, I don't think we will do that. We will treat every other party with respect. But we'd also respect the public vote, like let the Irish people decide. And then my mind, as long as they're not completely antithetical to you or, you know, the opposite of your values, then you sit down and uh, and you respect whoever the people vote for and you try and work with them to form a government and try to make it last five years. Would all parties would presumably include Sinn Féin and we've heard the other two coalition parties express their different views on it. Whatever about the past of the party, they've been quite weak when it comes to climate uh, targets in the past and, and, and their views on it very wishy-washy do you think you could do um, pu- purely on a climate focus do you think you could do business with Sinn Féin I think they would have to change I think they would have to become a lot more serious about investing in the environmental protection and in, in seeing social justice and ecological justice going hand in hand yeah I think I think it would be a challenge for them but I, I fully respect the party we've always had respect for the relationship I respect their voters and, and we'd sit down and make it work make it happen there's been quite a few and perhaps it goes underappreciated I guess that's the question do you think the Green Party have been good enough at triumphing your wins in coalition because when you look at the the climate budgets when you look at the nature restoration law you can make a clever an argument that this is one of the more progressive governments when it comes to climate but that doesn't seem to quite be the public sentiment on it yeah, because it's not easy delivering change. Every so we want change, but often maybe well, I'd like the other person over there to change, mm-hmm. not necessarily me. And and it's not immediately popular. Some of the things we're doing, like you know, I get a lot of heat on things like you know roads that maybe are not as advancing because we want to switch to public transport. Or you know, with the farming community, I can understand why the farming community is scared in a world where. Well, Jesus, when the climate's changing, farming's the first on first to be hit, but also when the income is not certain. Like the price of milk has gone from 30 euros three years ago up to 60 euros, go back down to 40. That's not, an, that's, that's not a certain world. And therefore you kind of, if someone said, oh, and by the way, we're going to change everything further. Right, you're not exactly flavor of the month or you wouldn't expect to be. But um, I think we, we can overcome that. And, and our, I think ultimately the path we're setting out it, it will only work if it's, if it's in a sense, it's, it's uh, people own it. People have their own sense of, yeah, this is my future. And I think the vast majority of Irish people do want to go green. I think they want to be responsible. Not just that, but they want their own county, community, street to be beautiful. They want to protect the creation around us. And, I, and, and our job is to help make that happen. Do you think the farming bodies have too much of an influence on the national debate, particularly when it comes to politics? No, I don't think so. I think uh, I mean, it's quite fragmented. There are six farming organizations. So, and even then, if you saw a few years ago, do you remember that whole beef plan? The thing, you know, there was a lot of the uh, the voices in farming were from outside. And actually, I think there's a lot of people. I mean, we, I mean, a lot of people involved in farming who maybe don't, you know, if we're working away on this green transition. It's actually really common now right around the country i don't think they're heard that much and i think it's it's a story that will start to increasingly told because it is happening like the numbers of people going into organic farming has tripled the uh 
there is there, there's a lot of farmers, young people going in saying, yeah, this is the way to go. This this green transition actually cuts your costs. Mm. It, it it's using your skills. It's kind of really clever management of the soil and of the water table and so on. So I, I think that will turn. When we look at the the budget, obviously people will be looking at a few different things. Cli- and we'll get into the climate side of it in a second, but. Energy was another big support people got last time. Michael McGrath has already signalled the pot for that is going to be smaller. Will there be those energy supports and will they be as extensive as last year? We're thinking about what we deliver in government. One of the things I'm conscious and very proud of what we delivered in the last three years, we delivered progressive budgets. We were able on budget day to put out an analysis from the ESRI showing that in the round, with all things considered, those on lowest incomes benefited more. And, um, And I think... To get that, you only can really judge towards the closing stages of the budget process. It's actually quite a difficult thing to do, but you're you're kind of balanced. There's also the trade-offs, you know, tax versus spend, uh, one social welfare versus health or whatever. You, you have also different conflicts in terms of, you know, you have lots of, of, uh, of priorities you want to spend on. One thing I think, this is going to be, I think, probably one of the most difficult budgets in a long time. That's a strange thing because we have a surplus. Why would it be difficult? Well, we do. I think what the Fiscal Advisory Council and what the Central Bank is saying is true. You'd be have to be careful we don't stoke inflation. And I'm, I'm old enough, I can remember the 80s. I can remember what happens when you get economic mismanagement wrong. You know, when you do find yourself then in, in either inflationary or high interest rates or in budget difficulties. So I think it is right for us to put aside some of the surplus corporate tax profits, not just into a rainy day fund, but into a future investment fund, when, you know, when we're not in such an inflationary period, and, and for climate and so on and other reasons. Um, I think that means that it won't be, they won't be able to meet all the demands. It, like Budgets are difficult, you know, you have to make choices. And I think we will do some measures in terms of support the cost of living because the energy prices are still high. They're coming down and that helps. We will have the windfall gains from the windfall taxes. That will also help. Um, but you only really decide the final element of it in, in the last few days when you can look and see, OK, well, this is the broad, you know, you, you get a sense of it and to be, of what the overall balance is. And to be honest, we're nowhere near that yet. Mm. Is there a bit, because this might be the second last budget of the government, might be the last budget of the government, depending on how things go. Um, is there something that you are keen to get done either this year or next year that that, that is a key goal for Eamon Ryan for the Green Party? Yes, loads. I'm going to completely transform the transport system towards active travel, public transport, really. I mean, Jesus, in transport alone, there's so much projects coming at us with Bus Connects, Dart Plus, Cork Metropolitan Rail, Limerick Metropolitan Rail, Cork, Galway Cross City, like I have to deliver a whole list along of your arm, get them all started into construction and built in energy the same. And in, in every area of my own portfolio, not to mention Roderick or Catherine's or Pippa's, um i think i think the uh, i think the climate targets do like we are the ship is turning we're starting to see in certain areas energy particularly like it's starting to work like our retrofitting targets were ahead of our retrofitting houses were ahead of target the solar revolution is taking off partly because we cut the vat increased the grants changed the planning rules and that sense in, I think housing is the most important probably thing. If I was, uh, that, and again, I'm proud that, like we promised in opposition, we would introduce cost rental housing. We're delivering it now at scale. And I think one of the reasons I'd say go March 25 
is just get as much built as we can and ramp it up as much as we can and so that would be my focus build mm. build 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 and build um that a way that's sustainable and a way that's good value for money like you don't you don't we you could just say build 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 and blow the budget and just you all you get is inflation you got to build quick but just be on that right side of not tipping the economy into a, a kind of an overheated really expensive place to be and live I know you're running to another meeting, so two very quick final questions, if you like. One is in relation to renewable energy. We could have spent another 20 minutes talking about that and what's going on this week. But I've always wondered, why is it that when it comes to the offshore wind in Ireland, it's being built ultimately and financed by private money? Why not go the state route, build it, own it as a state utility, like we did with Arden and Crusher, uh, and you know, control the prices and all that? Yeah, I got a lot of criticism a few a year ago because I switched from what was a developer-led approach to a state-led approach, plan-led approach, and but still working with developers because, I mean, the truth is, firstly, they have a lot of expertise, and also we will need to bring in something like about seventy billion euros of capital, and that seventy billion, if we were to take it out of the exchequer, well, where's the money for housing and education and all the other elements? But but the truth is, we we are actually as a state investing. Like Bordenamone, ESB, uh, are really serious players, including an offshore wind. Like the ESB are are, have, are actually out building at the moment in Scottish waters, admittedly, but they're coming into Irish waters. Same with Bordenamone, they're a really progressive energy company. Really start like they've gone from brown to green, dramatic turnaround. Really working. We'll have more workers next year in Bordenamone than there was in the you know back in the peak days of uh, of yore and and they're involved and also um there are irish companies as well going all over the world like you know companies like mainstream power they're building in south africa and chile and everywhere else so we're not without our own engineering and our own capability um there's nothing stopping the state companies making those investments where they're they're part of you know that's their we resource them to give them that capability but does that should that mean that we shut out everyone else? I, I don't think that would be sensible because we are ultimately come back to the thing earlier on. We're open to the rest of the world, we're an open country which works with neighbours, works with uh, other countries, and and we and we benefit from some of that international cooperation. Finally, then on the the future funding of public service broadcasting and and of RTE, it's not going to be dealt with in this budget. Obviously, there'll be an interim funding, but long term, I know this is something you've had lynched in a long time. Do you think? Is it the broadcasting charge route? Is it the direct taxation route? Which they both have issues, but which I side do you come down? I had views on that, and I. But actually, one of my main view at the moment is, whichever mechanism, we have to resolve this quickly. We, there was nothing would convince you more than that, than to be here in the states and turn on the television. And I hate to say I don't be critical of any individual, but my God Almighty, when you see some of where you know where where public broadcasting can go in terms of not serving the public. I, I use always as my example, the kind of first US primary uh, Republican candidates, aged them up on the stage. First question, hands up who believes in climate change? Like, God almighty, that wasn't, and not a hand goes up mm. because everyone's been terrified by this kind of use of certain issues as divisive issues, use of disinformation and, uh, yeah, of con- conspiracy theories wholesale writ large 
and the damage that does to a country, the damage it does to democracy, the damage it does to the public itself. You know, this you know you create a poisonous environment where who do you trust? Who's telling the truth? So. In that context, we need to come up with a quick solution to, and it's not just about RT, I think it's about wider other broadcasting corporations, other businesses, uh, companies, uh, local, print, national, digital, and so on, media, because that is one of the biggest risks to our democracy at this moment in time, that we will fall foul of what's happened in some other countries. And I hate to say it, but I use America as an example. Because what they did here, look back to history, this is really interesting. They got rid of the fairness doctrine back in the late 80s. Ronald Reagan was a power. Rudy Giuliani was running this city. He brought in Fox Cable News. And they got rid of the fairness doctrine, the responsibility to kind of balance, present both sides, you know, kind of check things. And if you look at what's happened since then, confidence in media in America has just gone down the toilet. And we need to avoid that. And to do that, you also need to fund it. And I think broadly the funding model, dual advertising, you could argue going away from advertising, but RT is also about entertainment and about holding an audience and so on. In a world where journalism, the future is very uncertain, media is very uncertain, we don't need to make it worse by just getting into a complete tailspin of kind of recriminations, who who signed off what in RT or whatever. Mm. I listen, we need to get RT on a stable financing footing and other media organisations. We need to create an environment where, as a young person, you could go into journalism and know you'd be able to raise a family, you'd have an income over the next 30, 40 years. That's not the case at the moment, and that's not a small thing for the future democracy, and that's then not a small thing in terms of making the sort of changes we need to make. If we're all about change here at the moment, let's have fair and accurate and honest reporting on it, and that needs broadcast funding. Uh, I feel that we could talk about any one of those issues for for another 30, 40 minutes. But listen, you've been very good with your time. Thanks a million. From the 21st floor in the uh, Ireland mission in New York. This is foreign affairs, if I've just explained. (laughs) (laughs) We in transport and deck are very humble. (laughs) Humble abodes. Yeah, much, much nicer than uh, certain broadcasting offices as well. I could say that much. Uh, Thank you for listening. Sean Defoe producing and presenting today with John Kill as the series editor. We'll chat to you soon.